Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these songs that we've been able to sing this morning and just rejoicing in our great salvation, rejoicing in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we pray as we gather together around your word that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. Help us to see and to understand these truths. And most of all, I pray that you would, by the ministry of the Spirit, help us to understand the significance of these things for our lives. That they would not just be things that we hear in this place on a Sunday morning, then go back to our regular life. But they would be truths that change us. That give us your perspective on our lives and on this world in which we live. Thank you for your word. We ask now that you would teach us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know you know this, but you don't have to spend much time uh, watching the evening news or perusing Facebook or listening to the radio or just looking around at daily interactions to figure out that we are a long way from Eden, right? We are a long way from Eden. I mean, you think about it. It's just like every time a marriage falls apart. You hear another friend's marriage is falling apart, or every time you read in the newspaper, you see on the news another school shooting, more senseless acts of violence, or every time it's revealed that another big corporation has played fast and loose with their financial reporting, or every time a friend has betrayed you, or you've maybe betrayed a friend. Every time it's a reminder. We're a long way from Eden. We are a long way from the innocent the paradise, the glorious peace and wholeness that we were created to enjoy. We live in a world, brothers and sisters, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We live in a fallen world, a world that does not reflect the goodness and the holiness in which it was originally created. Our value on life, our value on relationships, our value on loving and serving others created in the image of God has run far afoul from God's original design. And And if we're being real honest and real transparent with each other this morning, we have to admit that dealing day in and day out with the fallenness of this world and the fallenness of our hearts dealing with that, you know, day in, day out, here's another story, here's another friend's marriage falling apart. Dealing with that day in and day out, it can often lead us to times of of discouragement, right? Frustration, right? Ever been there? Maybe cynicism, you know? Stop, stop trusting people altogether. Or, or just those places of just growing numb to all of it. Just, just numb to all of it. And wh- whether it's the sin and the brokenness in the world around us or, or the brokenness in the relationships that we have that we cherish or just, again, the, the reality of wrestling with the sin that is in these hearts of ours and the consequences of those hearts sometimes. Such things can lead to, to our outlook on life becoming what I'll call peppered with pessimism. You ever been there? You know, pessimistic. Such things start to infect. They start to darken our perspective. Does anybody, you're relating to what I'm talking about. Anybody else want to admit to coming to those places? It's okay to raise your hands in church. Yeah, yeah. we, we get to those places where we get frustrated and we start to get discouraged or we start to become cynical or, or sometimes even worse, just numb to all of it. But Jesus has given us something to help correct our perspective. He's given us his promises. Amen? He's given us his promises. And this morning we get to look at one of his best promises. We get to look at one of the best promises. We get to look at the promise that he's coming back. Amen? 
Jesus is coming back. We get to look at that promise. And what I'm praying that you see this morning, and this has been on my heart all week as I've been working on this message, what I'm praying that you see this morning is that this promise, the promise of Jesus' return, is to be what carries us through those dark days. It's to be a tool that we use to fight the discouragement, to fight the frustration, to fight the cynicism, to fight the numbness that can creep into our heart and darken our perspective. It's to be the ray of hope that teaches us as Christians to say, though this world is broken, and it is, amen? Though this world is broken, we won't get discouraged because we know Jesus has promised it won't always be this way. It won't always be this way. He's coming back, and redemption is coming with him. That's the promise. The way that this world is is not the way it's always going to be. Amen? That's a promise. Amen? The way that this world is is not the way that it's always going to be. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to change it, and that's what we get to look at this morning. And we're going to look at this promise through the lens of Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and turn over in your Bibles to the gospel of Mark and chapter 13. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that we've already seen some promises given in this chapter. As we've been working through this chapter now, several weeks in this chapter, we've seen several promises given, but the promises that have been given by Jesus so far haven't been very hopeful. They haven't been very hopeful promises thus far. They haven't been the most encouraging promises. Let me just remind you of the very first promise that we saw in this chapter. If you remember, chapter 13 opens with Jesus and his disciples leaving the temple in Jerusalem. And as they leave, one of the disciples points out the the greatness, the wonder of the temple. You see his comment there in verse 1. He says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And he's just marveling at the greatness, the glory, the grandeur of the temple. And again, as we talked about when we looked at that text, this is a massive structure, one of the wonders of the ancient world. So as they're leaving, he's just in awe of, of the temple. And he's, he's boasting about this, the glory of the temple. And as, I, as I've explained, the temple is really the heart of, of Jewish worship. And it was, it was a key element in their identity as a people. So he's boasting in that. But that disciple's boast here in the text is greeted with some startling words about the future of the temple. And here we find the first promise given in this chapter. Jesus tells his men, what? Verse 2. Look at verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? Then what does he say? There's not going to be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. How's that for a promise? That was a great encouraging promise for those guys in that day. That's not an encouraging promise at all. Actually, by telling those guys that Jesus, Jesus, he rocked their world. He's just told them that the heart of their worship, this, this pillar of their identity as a people, is going to be completely destroyed. It's going to be completely annihilated. It will be no more. And that promise has the minds of these men racing. Mark tells us that four of the disciples, look at it there, four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, really four of the most influential disciples, they have a private conversation with Jesus and As they are seated on the Mount of Olives, they're overlooking the temple. These disciples ask Jesus a question that I think probably many of us would ask if we were in the same situation. Look at verse 4. Tell us, Jesus tells us, okay, you you dropped this bomb on us. Now tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they want to know what? How long have we got, right? How long have we got? And what should we be watching for? They want to make sure they're not surprised when this promise comes true. And Jesus doesn't want them to be surprised either. But I think the answer that he gives to their question is far different 
than what they were expecting. Jesus' lengthy answer that really fills up the rest of this chapter, and this is really the longest answer that Jesus gives to any question asked in the Gospel of Mark. But his lengthy answer focuses his disciples' attention not so much on the temple, not so much on Jerusalem or even the Jewish people. It's not primarily an answer about signs and timelines. Instead, Jesus focuses his disciples' attention on how they are to live, how they are to live as his followers during the difficult and trying times that lay ahead. He focuses their attention on how to be faithful to the mission that he's given them, no matter what lay ahead. And he begins by telling his men, don't get distracted by the non-signs and the deceivers who would use them. Look at verse 5. He says in verse 5, he warns his disciples, what? Verse 5, see that no one does what? Deceives you, leads you astray. And then he gives them another promise. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, freak out. Now what does he say? Do not be alarmed. This must take place. This is the end? No, this is not the end. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning of the birth pain. Jesus tells his men, watch out. Watch out. There are going to be pretenders out there. There are going to be these messianic posers who are going to try to use things like wars and rumors and wars and earthquakes and famines to lead people astray. They, they will piggyback on those political and natural disasters to offer false hope. So Jesus says, watch out for them. Watch out for them. Don't get pulled away by those who are going to use these difficult things, these, these difficulties of living in a fallen world, and use them to distract you from your mission. Don't get pulled away from the mission I've given you. Jesus then tells his men about how difficult it's going to be trying to live faithful to the mission he's given them. He explains that there won't just be those who try to distract and deceive. There are also going to be those who stand in direct opposition to the mission. In verses 9 to 13, Jesus explains the opposition that his followers will face. Look at what he says. He says, but be on your guard. You you catch a theme here? Watch out. Be on your guard. But be on your guard, and, and here's another difficult promise. For they might, is that what the text says? For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. That's the mission. Amen, brothers and sisters? That's the mission. That's why we're here, right? To preach the gospel. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. That's a good promise there, right? We've got a good one here, okay? That's a good promise. But now back to the difficult ones, verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children rise against their parents to have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus says, difficult days are coming. Uh, They will directly oppose you. People will directly oppose you as you testify about Jesus, as you try to proclaim his gospel. But Jesus says your call is to keep going, right? Your call is to persevere. Don't lose sight of the mission. Rest in the power of the Holy Spirit. Rest in the sustaining grace of God. Don't give up. Don't give up. And then he tells his men, and this is really to all of the followers of Jesus, that times are going to get really hard. Times are going to get really hard. In verses 14 to 23, Jesus paints a picture of the fall of the temple. But then he uses that event to look beyond it to a time of intense suffering 
the likes of which the world has never before known. Jesus tells his men that not only do they need to be ready for the fall of the temple, but all of us need to be ready for a time, look at verse 19, for a time of such tribulation. Remember when we talked about this? Tribulation. That makes a, speaks of persecution and suffering. Of such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which that God created until now, which that's a long time, right? So this is, this is unique in human history. There's never been a time like this. Such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of the creation of God that God created until now and never will be. And brothers and sisters, that's a season we need to be ready for. There's coming a day when, when the enemies of God, when those who have the, their hatred for Christ and for his gospel, when that will be poured out in a way we've never seen before on the people of God. There's coming a day when we will see, as we have not truly seen before, the fallenness of this world. The fallenness of this world. And Jesus tells his men, and Mark tells his readers, and the Spirit of God says to all of us, verse 23, look at verse 23, here it is again, but what? But be on guard. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Watch out, Jesus says. Live understanding that difficult times are coming. Difficult times are coming. But what does that mean to live as difficult times are coming? Does that mean, does it mean we, we go get a bunker, you know, start stockpiling food and, and just, we're just going to try to hang on, right? Is that what it means? No, it means what it's meant through the whole chapter that we live faithful to the mission. Live faithful to the mission. And then it also means what we get to look at this morning. Live confident of our hope. Live faithful to the mission and live confident of our hope. You see, we are to live knowing that the difficult times, the dark times, will not triumph. Is that something we need to remind ourselves of? Are there moments, whether it's that story on the news or the story that's happening in some friend's relationship or just what God has revealed in your own heart when you feel like maybe the dark times will triumph? Anybody ever feel that way? So this is an important thing to remind ourselves, to live knowing that the difficult times will not triumph. And this is where the promises in chapter 13 start to turn in our favor. They start to get really good. You see, Jesus promises here that the difficult days, they're just, mark this down, they're just the momentary darkness before the glorious dawn of our redemption. Amen? They're just the momentary darkness. Sometimes they don't feel very momentary, right? Sometimes they feel massive. But they're just the momentary dawn before the glorious, I mean the momentary darkness before the glorious dawn of our redemption. And that's what we get to look at this morning. The promises start to turn in our favor. Look at verse 24. All that stuff I just talked about, that's all review. So verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus introduces a sign, and as you look at this verse, it's quite a sign. Now, remember, Jesus' disciples, they've been asking for what? A sign, right? They, these guys want a sign. They want, they want something to watch for. Again, their question was, tell us when these things will be and what will be the, the sign when these things are about to be accomplished. So they want something to signify that the events that they are looking for are on their way. Now, let me remind you, that these men aren't simply asking for a sign um, for the fall of the temple. As I explained in earlier messages in this chapter, these men, like many of their contemporaries, have connected the fall of the temple with, with two other key events. Many of the Jews in Jesus' day believed that if the temple was going to fall, and again, this was a wonder of the ancient world. This was a massive structure. Many thought it would never fall. It would survive forever. But they, they, they believed that if it was going to fall, that would be because it was connected with two other events. The end of the world, 
the end of the age, and the glorious reign of the Messiah. And so they believed that if the temple did fall, that means that the world was ending and the glorious age of the Messiah had come. And we know that this is what the disciples are thinking in their question because Matthew, in his parallel account of this conversation, tells us that. According to Matthew 24, verse 3, this was the disciples' full question. Listen to it. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And of the end of the age. So when Mark says back here in verse 4, that the disciples asked, tell us when will these things, plural, be? And what will be the sign when all these things, plural, are about to be accomplished? That these things that the disciples are asking about are, one, the fall of the temple, two, the glorious arrival of the Messiah, and three, the end of the age. That's what they're looking for. And again, they've kind of wrapped all those events together. But that's what they're after. Now, so far as we've been working through this text, there's only one sign been given in chapter 13, and that's been in verse 14. When you see, look at verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation. That's the only sign that's been given thus far. Thus far, there's been a lot of non-signs given. Uh, Jesus says, head, when you hear, don't be alarmed. These are not the end, those things that we talked about that the deceivers would use. But the abomination of desolation, verse 14, has been the only sign thus far that Jesus has given in response to his disciples' question. And that sign, as we looked at in our last message in Mark, had to do with the Romans coming and surrounding the temple and coming into the holy place and defiling the altar. And when that happened, that was the sign that you needed to to flee because the destruction of the temple quickly followed. But here's the thing. Not everybody picked up on that sign. Some missed that sign. Some didn't understand it. Some overlooked it. And because of that, they didn't flee. And they suffered the consequences. They ended up facing, and we talked about this in that message, they ended up facing the the brutality and the wrath of the Romans. Many lost their lives because they missed or they didn't heed the sign. However, when you come to verse 24, Jesus gives a sign that I don't think anybody's going to miss. He gives a sign that I don't think anybody's going to miss. Look at verse 24. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, and here's the sign, look at the sign, the sun will be what? Pretty important sign there. <laughs> You're not going to miss that one. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Brothers and sisters, that's a sign that nobody <laughs> is going to miss. Amen? Nobody's going to miss that one. And although nobody's going to miss a sign like that, I mean, it's going to be pretty obvious. Maybe as we're, we're reading it here and we're looking at it from a distance, we don't fully understand the significance of this sign. But here's the thing. The disciples, as they're listening to Jesus on that day, they would have understood the significance of this sign. You see, Jesus is using terminology here taken from the Old Testament. He's using terminology used in the Old Testament to describe what was called the day of the Lord. How many of you have heard of that? So everybody, because we read about it in 1 Thessalonians 5, right? This morning in the Scripture. All right, bad joke. Keep it going. All right. Um, but the day of the Lord, and again, the day of the Lord is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. And the day of the Lord, according to the Old Testament, it was a time of both deliverance and of judgment. A time of deliverance and of judgment. Now, the judgment coming on that day, um, boy, you read some of these passages, I won't read all of them, but it's, it's staggering, the description. It's going to be fierce judgment. On that day, God will put an end to the wickedness and uh, unrighteousness. Listen to a section. I'm just going to read one of these passages. Listen to a section from Isaiah. This is Isaiah's description of the day of the Lord. This is from Isaiah chapter 13. You can jot this reference down. Isaiah 13, 9 to 11. 
Isaiah writes, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with, fear, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. And then listen to this. See, see if this sounds familiar. For the stars in the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. It sounds a lot like what? Like what we're seeing here in our text. Then it continues, I, says the Lord, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I won't go on to read it there, but God talks about wiping out so many people that human beings will be as rare as gold. It's going to be a day of fierce wrath and judgment. And God's declaring through these texts that say that, that, that the wickedness of this world that won't continue forever unchecked. Do you have those moments when you kind of ask that question, how long, O oh Lord, is it going to be like this? Anybody have those moments? Not that you're wishing wrath and judgment on it, but you get, you get tired of the fallenness. Well, God's saying it's not going to keep going this way forever. It's not going to keep going unchecked forever. A day of reckoning is coming. And, and the signs that Jesus mentions here in our text are, are signs of that day the day of the Lord. And if we were to take the time, you could go to other texts that, where you find a similar picture of the day of the Lord. I'll give you these, and you can look at them later. Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32, Joel chapter 2, Amos chapter 8, and there, there are others, but you see this picture of the day of the Lord. But, and this is a very important thing to note. The day of the Lord isn't just described in the Old Testament as a day of judgment, praise God. It's not just a day of judgment. It's also shown as a day of deliverance. Let me give you some of those references. In Jeremiah 30, verses 8 and 9, Jeremiah says this, And it shall come to pass in that day, the day of the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. That's pretty graphic language, but it's it's good language, right? I'm going to break the yoke. I'm going to burst the bonds. What's that talking about? It's talking about liberation, right? Freedom, redemption. That's what it's talking about. I I will break his yoke from off of your neck. I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of them, of the people of God. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Find a similar picture in Isaiah chapter 27. This is Isaiah 27, verses 12 to 13. We read this. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and will worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Again, it's a picture, the day of the Lord, a picture of of restoration, of of deliverance. So so this day, the day of the Lord, according to the Old Testament, uh, is seen as a day of reckoning, uh, a day of reckoning. A day when the wicked oppressors of God's people would be dealt with and the people themselves would be delivered and restored. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here in Mark chapter 13. We've just walked through, I mean, just think about this. We've just walked through this, these scenes, right? Scene after scene of oppression of God's people, of, of tribulation, of people trying to deceive the followers of Christ, people trying to oppose the message of Jesus, all of this tribulation. But then Jesus says, but when you see the heavens start to fall apart, when you see the sign of the day of the Lord... Get ready, because things are going to change. Get ready, because things are going to change. Now, as I was thinking about this sign, the sun being darkened and the moon giving its light and the stars falling from the heavens, I started to think of it through, through the lens of our study in the book of Genesis. Again, some of you are doing that study with us, going through the book of Genesis. And, 
And I started to think about this sign in light of what we talked about a few weeks ago in that study. Remember how in Genesis chapter 1, we, we saw that God's creation was, was a picture of order, right? So it was a picture of order. And, and everything was set by God in its proper place. Remember some of those of you, I don't know what the ladies talked about, you guys might have talked about that, I might talk about something else, but the guys, we talked about this, as you walk through Genesis chapter 1, it's just such a picture of order, God putting everything in its proper place. And you remember there, in chapter 1, we read this, and God made two great lights, right? The great light, the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was what? Good. God saw that it was good. And as we studied, we, we marveled at the way God ordered things. God, God designed things. He purposed things. The, the universe wasn't created in chaos and disarray. But in design and purpose, everything was set, right? In its proper place. But what does this sign look like? What does this sign look like? <laughs> it looks like the opposite. It looks like everything falling apart, right? It looks like everything falling to pieces. It looks like the world coming apart. It looks like the universe coming undone. And I have to wonder if God chose this symbol to make clear that this is the end of the way things are. This is the end of the way things are. The day of the Lord is not about a little remodeling. It's about a complete restoration. The sign is the universe falling apart because we're on the verge of radical change. Radical change. And radical change is coming because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And that's what the sign points to. Jesus says, look at the text, verses 26 and 27. When these things happen, when the sign in the heavens, when the sign in the heavens takes place, he says, then they will see what? Or better, who? Okay, have I lost everybody? I hope not. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is the day of the Lord. And one word I want to encourage you to write. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, right in the margin. But one word I want you to encourage you to write in your Bibles next to this passage is redemption. Redemption. I love the way Luke, in his gospel, records this promise. In his parallel text, and again, this text that we're working through, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's also in Luke. And Luke, in his account of this, Luke chapter 21, verses 27 to 28, he tells us that Jesus said, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now when these things begin to take place, and I love this, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Isn't that awesome? You know, straighten up. Raise your head. Get excited because your redemption is drawing near. I love that. That's the way we need to see this. That's why I encourage you. Write that word in your, in your Bibles and then, you know, go over to Luke. You know, maybe put that little note there in Mark for you. Go over to Luke because that's the way we need to see this. Redemption. Redemption is coming. Jesus is coming back and our redemption is coming with him. Now, I want you to understand what I mean by that. Yes, we are saved now. Amen? Amen. We are saved now. And we are redeemed now. We are liberated from our, our bondage to, to sin and judgment. But the fullness of our redemption is still coming. Amen? The fullness of our redemption is on its way. When Jesus comes back, we will drink in, brothers and sisters, the riches, the completeness of this great salvation won for us by the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, you ever, maybe you don't do this, but you ever just think about what that day's really going to be like? 
And maybe you should think about it on those days when you're like at the end of your rope, you know? And you're like, man, I just want to throw my hands up and give up. And you remember, it's not always going to be this way. Because redemption is coming. Redemption is coming. And we are going to drink it so deeply. We are going to rejoice so much in that salvation. And what Jesus is describing here is his coming, mark this, as the final king of the earth's final kingdom. The final king of the earth's final kingdom. Jesus is using language here from Daniel chapter 7 to describe this events for his, these events for his disciples. Um, in Daniel chapter 7, a text that his disciples would have been very familiar with, you find a scene, really graphic scene, of, of the kingdoms of the earth rising up and conquering one another. And, and again, so graphic scene, it's a very picturesque scene. The different kingdoms, if you remember this text in Daniel 7, they're described as beasts, and they're coming out of this raging sea, and they're, they're pretty ugly beasts, and they're coming out one, conquering the other one, having been given dominion over the other. And so Daniel sees all this, all this, these nations conquering one another. And in the midst of that scene, Daniel sees the coming of one who, who's different from all of these beasts. He sees the coming of the earth's final king and his everlasting dominion. And, and like I said, this one doesn't look like a beast. Listen to what Daniel says. This is Daniel chapter 7. Maybe jot this reference down. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, And I saw in the night visions. So I'm seeing all these visions, these beasts, this picturing the, the kingdoms of the earth conquering one another. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds in heaven, there came one, not like a beast, but like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that's the picture, that's the language that Jesus uses here to describe his return. His return, I want you to understand this, will be the coming of a king. It'll be the coming of a king. No, no lonely manger, no humble stable. This will be a coming in great power and glory. Now, now there are a lot of different terms that Christians use to describe the return of Jesus. A blessed hope, second coming. Uh, here in the West, probably the term that jumps to, maybe the first term that jumps to people's minds is the term the rapture. And, and all these words are good, but they aren't the key term that the New Testament writers use. They're not the key term that the New Testament writers use. To really capture the essence of Christ's return, his, his kingly coming in power and glory, the New Testament writers chose the Greek word parousia. Parousia. And in our English Bibles, that word is often translated as coming. But it, it means a lot more than just showing up. Um, originally, the word meant presence. However, over time, um, by the time of the New Testament, the word had come to be used by the Greek-speaking world, world as a technical term that spoke of a royal visit, spoke of the arrival of a king. So a parousia was when the king arrived. And when the king arrived, not just when he showed up, but when he showed up with all the pomp and the circumstance. It was his glorious arrival in power. It was when he showed up either as the conquering king or the celebrated dignitary. That's what a parousia was. And this is the term that the New Testament writers consistently use to describe the return of Jesus. Parousia. The glorious arrival 
of a king, the glorious arrival of a king. And that's actually what Jesus' disciples have asked him about. Again, when Matthew records their full question, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, the word that our English Bibles translate as coming is this word, can you guess it? This word, parousia. That's what the disciples want to know about. What will be the sign of your coming, the sign of your parousia? The disciples want to know about the glorious advent of the Messiah. His coming like a king with all his power and all his glory and all the pomp and all the circumstance. They want to know about the coming of his glorious and everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus tells them, when you see the heavens start to fall apart, when you see the sign of the day of the Lord, know that my parousia is at hand. It's at hand. But according to the New Testament, what does this, this event this coming, this glorious arrival entail? What will be included in this event? Well, I have three R words for you to help describe this event. You ready for these words? Revelation, rescue, and recompense. Revelation, rescue, and recompense. First, the parousia will be about the revelation of Jesus. So Jesus' glorious arrival will be about the revelation of Jesus. And by that, I mean the world's going to finally see him for who he is. The world's going to see him for who he is. Jesus tells us in our text. What does he say? And they will what? They will hear? What does it say? So, so we're done with the age of the ear, which is where we are right now, right? We're proclaiming the gospel. We're telling people about Jesus. We want them to hear the message of Jesus. We're done with the age of the ear when we hit this text. And we're in the age of the eye, right? When faith will be sight. And it says, and they will see. They will see the Son of Man. How? Lowly in a manger. No, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The world, all those who, who have hated, who have opposed, who have mocked, who have ridiculed Jesus. And again, you see it more and more in our culture, right? It's like kind of the in thing to make fun, you know, ridicule Jesus. But there's coming a day when all those will see Jesus for who he truly is. Amen. They will see him for who he truly is. They will see him coming with the majesty of heaven. They will see him coming in the glory of God. They will not see a lowly carpenter. They will see a conquering king. And that's why the New Testament describes this event, the parousia, also as the revelation of Jesus or or the appearing of Jesus. It's going to be visible. It's not going to be a secret out of the way coming. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says that the Lord will be, listen to this, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's how he describes this event. Nobody's going to miss that, right? Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And then in the next chapter of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus will bring the man of lawlessness, which is another name for the Antichrist, who will rise up before this time. He will bring the man of lawlessness to nothing. Now listen to what Paul says, to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The appearance of his parousia. Then over in Titus chapter 2, Paul says that we are waiting for our blessed hope. And often when we think of that, what do we think of? I'm getting out of here, right? But, but that's not what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 says we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope, brothers and sisters. We are longing for the day when the glory of Jesus will be revealed. Are you longing for that day? When the world will see, you're not a fool. You're not an idiot for trusting in Jesus. There's coming a day. That's our blessed hope. 
when the glory of Jesus is going to be revealed, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that day is going to be the parousia, the kingly arrival of Jesus. The Apostle Peter writes about this event as well. He mentions it twice in chapter 1 of his first letter, of his first epistle. And he says this. He says, this is First Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He says that the testing of our faith, so all the, all the difficulties, all the trials that we go through. And how many of you go through trials? Yeah, okay. Just making sure everybody's still awake this morning. We all go through those difficulties and trials. But Peter says that the testing of our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus appears in his glory, all the things that we endured as his witnesses will be shown to be worth it. Amen? Because Jesus will be shown to be what? Worth it. Jesus will be shown to be worth it. Then a few verses later, this is verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Peter tells his readers, and I love this, this is something we need to grab a hold of. He says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully, not partially. So it's not like some of my hopes in my bank account, some of my hopes in my relationships, some of my hopes in my health, which, you know. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus comes back, when the king makes his royal appearance in power and glory, Peter says, grace is coming with him. Grace is coming with him. And that's the second thing that the parousia will be about. It will be about the grace of Jesus as he comes to rescue his people. So this kingly arrival, it will be about the revelation of Jesus. Everybody will see him for who he is. And it will also be about the rescue, the rescue of the people of Jesus. Look at our text. Jesus says, verse 27, And then he, and who is the he? Son of man, Jesus Christ. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect. Who is that? Yeah, it's us. Because we're so great? Chosen because we're so great? No. Why did God choose us? Because we were sinners needed saving. Amen. What were we bringing to the table? Well, no, not nothing. Our own sin, right? That's what we, brought. That's what we have contributed to our salvation, our own sin, right? But, but we're chosen by the grace and mercy of God. Amen? Not because of anything in us. But he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's another way of saying what? Everywhere. From everywhere. Jesus will rescue his own. Amen? He's coming back for his bride. And this is such great news, especially when you think about all the difficult times, all the the tribulations that Jesus has described thus far in this chapter, right? All the things. He says, you're going to walk through this. Remember, we looked at all those rather discouraging promises, right? You're going to walk through this. You're going to walk through this. You're going to walk through this. But here we're at the end of all of that, amen? We're at the end of all of that. The king has returned, and he's returned to gather us to himself. Now, I'm going to get a little controversial for a moment, but that's okay. There are some who teach that what Jesus is describing here in Mark 13 is a different event than what's called the rapture, uh, an event that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And they say that because the event here clearly follows the days of the great tribulation. Verse 24 says, but in those days, what does it say next? After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, right? And on it goes. And then Jesus is coming back. So some who don't believe that we, the church, will go through the tribulation, see this here in Mark 13 and the parallel in Matthew 24, as a different event than the rapture. However, been here for a couple of weeks since we've been going through this study, you've probably figured out I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those who hold to that. I think that 
this event being described here is the rapture of the church. I think we will go through the tribulation. And I'll tell you this. I told a few people jokingly this a couple weeks ago. This is one of the doctrines, the one doctrine the Bible hope I'm wrong on. Because <laughs> they don't want to go through that. But I think this is what the Bible teaches. And I think what Jesus is explaining here is the same event that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, the event that's called the rapture. And let me explain why I say that. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4 for a moment. I won't do a detailed exposition of this passage. I just want to point out a couple things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, my first reason, and maybe this is just the best reason, the most obvious one. My first reason for thinking that the events in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke are, are the same as being described here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that Paul tells us he's talking about the same event. How's that for a reason? Paul tells us he's talking about the same event. As I've already explained, Mark 13 is describing the parousia of Jesus. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, that's what Paul says he's writing about as well. Look at verse 15 there, 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until when? Until the coming of... And again, in our English Bibles, we just want to kind of read right by that. But if you were to look at that in the original language, what would you see? You would see this word, parousia. We who are alive and are left until the parousia of the, of the Lord. So that's the term that Paul uses. So Paul says, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this kingly arrival of Jesus. I'm talking about the same thing that Jesus taught about in the Olivet Discourse. So for those who want to hold that Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are a different event from 1 Thessalonians 4, then they need to find support in the New Testament there are, that there are multiple parousia of Jesus. And... I don't think the New Testament supports that at all. There will be one coming of Jesus as the conquering king. One coming of Jesus in glory and power and revelation. One coming, one parousia of Jesus to rescue his people, not not multiple comings. And when Jesus comes and gathers us to himself, what's going to happen is we will then usher in the conquering king to his kingdom. And that's the picture that I think uh, Paul is painting here when he describes the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's not a catching up, and this is often the way we think of it. It's a catching up to take us away. It's not a catching up to take us away. It's a gathering us to Jesus to welcome him and then proceed back to earth with him. And I think Paul makes that clear to his readers by the terminology that he uses here. You see, when a conquering king came into a city, when he had a royal dignitary arriving in your, in your town with, with all of the pomp and the circumstance, when he had one of these parousia, several of the citizens of the city would go out before the, the dignitary, before the king arrived, and they would welcome them, gather together with them, and then usher that conquering dignitary, usher that conquering king back into the city. And there was a technical term used in the time of Jesus to describe this event. There was a technical term, a cultural word for this type of meeting someone to welcome them back in. And Paul uses that technical term here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He uses it in verse 17. Look at verse 17. There he says, Then we who are alive and who are left at the parousia of Jesus will be caught up together with them. And who's the them? So our loved ones in Christ who have gone on before us, but now with the parousia of Jesus, there's been a resurrection, and so they've been raised. He says, We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we can all focus on this word, caught up. That's the word that you get the term rapture from. But really, I think the significant term here is the verb, to meet. And we just read right over that. But that's the significant term. And I say that 
Because Paul isn't just using a term that means, oh, we're going to get together and we're going to hang out. He is using this technical term that means to meet someone in order to welcome them and then usher them in. And here's the thing. This term is only used three times in the entire New Testament. So it's not a common word. So so Paul had all kinds of words that he could have used here. But he's used this word, and it's only used three times in the New Testament. And every time it is used in the New Testament, it means meeting someone in order to welcome them and then usher them back to where you just came from. That's what it's used all three times. That's what it means all three times it's used. So it's a technical term that Paul's readers all would have known and understood. It was a common event connected with a parousia, with a glorious arrival of a king. And you would go out and meet him before he arrived, and welcome him in. And here Jesus says we're going to meet Jesus. I mean, here Paul says we're going to meet Jesus where? We're going to meet him in the air. And the picture is we will meet him, we will be gathered together with him, we will welcome him in, and then we will return with him to rule over the earth with him as our king. So Paul uses this technical term, and guess who else uses this term? Anybody want to toss a guess out there? Jesus. Jesus used this term. And guess where he used it? He used it to describe the events that we're talking about here in Mark 13. In Matthew's parallel to our text, Matthew tells us that Jesus gave some some parables as he was teaching about the parousia. They're not recorded here in Mark, but they're recorded over in Matthew. And one of those parables is about a wedding party and some folks, some bridesmaids, some virgins who are waiting for the groom. And when the groom arrives, Jesus says the groom arrives middle of the night, midnight, and an announcement goes out. And here's the announcement. Come out to meet him. Come out to meet him. And all of the wedding party, this group that has been eagerly anticipating waiting, they don't know when he's coming, right? They've been eagerly anticipating. They all get up and they're to go out to meet him. But again, they're not just going out to meet him and hang out with him. No, Jesus has used this technical term that means go out, welcome, and bring them back. That's how Jesus, in that parable, when he's talking about his parousia, he describes this is the way we're to wait for his return. We are waiting to greet him, to be gathered to him, in order that we would return with him as he rules over his kingdom. So all that to say, Paul and Jesus are not talking about two different events. They're describing the same event. They're describing Christ coming to rescue his own and then proceed with them in triumph, in his parousia. Paul also gives us a, a good summary picture of this event. It's over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible still in 1 Thessalonians 4, jump over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul's writing to Christians who are enduring many of the things that Jesus is describing there in Mark 13. They are suffering, they are enduring tribulation as they stand as faithful witnesses for Jesus. If, if you read through the book of Acts and you read through First and Second Thessalonians, you realize life was not easy for these guys. They're in young church, a new church, but man, right off the get-go, they're going through all kinds of trial and difficulty and persecution. Life was not easy for the Thessalonians. And so Paul writes to them, let's jump in here at verse 4 of Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. And why is Paul boasting about them? What does it say? Okay, yeah, for your perseverance, for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and all the afflictions, literally the tribulations that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which you are also suffering. So this is about God saying, yes, you are one of my own. And because you're one of my own, people are going to hate you because you're preaching the gospel. Okay? 
But he says, verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when? When is that coming? When is the relief coming? Is it, is it in the secret rapture before the tribulation? What does it say? When the Lord Jesus is what? Revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when the relief is coming. That's when the rescue is coming. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. There it is. That's kind of a summary of this event. It's a picture of the triumphant return of Jesus. It will be a day of revelation. It will be a day of rescue. And it will also be a day of recompense. It's a sobering text as we read through that, isn't it? I mean, that, that's reality. This isn't just, you know, some, some fantasy land stuff. This is reality. It's a sobering text, but it echoes the same things that we were looking at in those Old Testament texts that describe the day of the Lord. When Jesus returns, when the king arrives, judgment is coming with him. Judgment is coming with him. Those who have afflicted the people of God, those who have refused the salvation of God, those who have loved wickedness instead of righteousness, those who have pursued lawlessness instead of justice, those who have thought they could continue to do evil unchecked forever, they will be dealt with, and they will be dealt with by who? By Jesus, by the king. When the king returns and his glorious arrival, everything will be put as it should be. Everything will be made right. Everything. Now, as we talk about this, Jesus coming back and coming back as the judge, it's not something we should delight in in the sense of souls perishing, but it's something that we should be warned by. Amen? I mean, you're either welcoming Jesus as your rescuer or you're facing him as your judge. What's the difference? Well, the difference is calling upon Jesus Christ as Savior. Amen? I mean, the gospel goes out. Again, we're in the age of the ear, and the gospel is proclaimed, and the call is Jesus Christ is your Savior. He is your Lord. You are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Throw yourself completely. Rest absolutely. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And that's the message that goes out. That's the message we need to proclaim. Amen? Because the day is coming. The day is coming. It will be a, a rescue for us. But for all those who have rejected, it won't be. It won't be. That's not something we delight in. But it's something that motivates us. Amen? Jesus is coming back and everything is going to be as it should be. I want to close this morning by reading from the opening chapter of the book of Acts. Go ahead and turn over there, if you would, and I'll wrap up with this. Acts chapter 1. I think this is a good challenge for us as we think about the return of Jesus, how we're to live. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6, we read this. And again, this is following the resurrection of Jesus. He's been with his disciples 40 days. So when they had come together, they asked him, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There they are again with their when questions, right? The guys can't get away from these questions. Is this the time? 
But he said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what's for you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be what? My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then verse 9. And when he, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took, them from, took him from their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, two angels, stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And I love that message of the angels because I think it shows us how to live in this time when we are waiting for the return of Jesus. The angels asked the disciples, I love this question, why do you stand looking into heaven? And you want to go, what are you talking about? We just saw Jesus going to heaven. Why are you asking, why are we standing looking into heaven? But they're asking these guys, Jesus is coming again, but why are you standing there, mouths gaping open, looking up into heaven when Jesus has just told you what? You've got a job to do, amen? Why are you standing gazing into heaven? you got a job to do. Jesus has told you you're his witnesses, so go be his witnesses you got a job to do, so go do the job. And that's also the message of Mark 13. Difficult days lay ahead. But our call is to keep focused in our mission, keep focused on being the witnesses of Jesus. And when the days get hard, and, and they will, and we're tempted to get discouraged and throw up our hands and say, no more, fat it, can't handle this anymore. We're to fight that discouragement with the promise that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Our King is coming, and he is bringing our redemption with him. Amen. So Luke says, when you see the signs, straighten up, raise up your heads, get excited, because you are on the verge of everything being made right. The way that the world is, is not the way that the world will always be. Amen. And it's all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I praise you that you have called us to do this mission, proclaiming the gospel, preaching your salvation to all people, that anyone, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. What a gospel, what a message. And we thank you that you have told us beforehand that it's going to be difficult. There are going to be deceivers, there are going to be mockers, there are going to be people who stand in direct opposition to us proclaiming this message. But we praise you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to empower us as your witnesses. You have given us your sustaining grace that that preserves us, that keeps us to the end. And most of all, you have given us the promise of your return. You are coming back, and one day the world will see you as our glorious king. And we will be gathered together with you, and we will reign with you forever. And everything, everything, all of the, the brokenness that tears our hearts that grieves us will be no more. And you will make everything as it should be. Lord Jesus, what a promise. And I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that as we walk through the trying times, through the difficulties, as we hear these stories in the news of just senseless violence, it just breaks our hearts. As we hear of Families that we love falling apart. That we would not get discouraged or frustrated or cynical or we would not become these, these people who are numb to it all. 
but we would be a people motivated by the hope of your return. That we would be proclaimers of the king. Jesus is coming back. That would be the message on our lips no matter what's going on in the world around us. Lord Jesus, we love you. I pray that that you would take this, this text by the power of your spirit and drive it deep into our hearts. Make us a people who walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. These things we pray in your name.